0: This week's Eldritch Lorecast, we are taking a deep dive into the Unearthed Arcana for 1D&D and which direction Wizards of the Coast might be moving in for D&D's future, all that and more right now. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lorecast, the number one podcast in all of the Planescape because that's part of the news. Anyway, I hope you're feeling inspired this week and have just rolled a critical hit, but not if you're a game master like me. Very sad. Get as many jokes and puns out at the top as I can. My name is Ben Byrne, and I'm here, as always, with Dale Kingsmill, James Hake, Sean Merwin. I came very close to saying Dale Hake there for some reason. I think it's the the Ks in the names. Um, We
1: can trade (laughs) surnames. Yeah, there you go. James Kingsmill.
0: It's very regal. has a regality to it. Nice name. Uh, James Kingsmill, James Haig, can I ask, how often when you are running games are you handing out inspiration to your players? It is a forgettable thing. Um,
2: I like to hand out inspiration, but uh, I often, if I don't forget it, I, I will sort of second guess myself into not performing a favoritism on players. And so I'll often find instances where in the fiction, the characters can be inspired rather than as a metagame reward for good roleplay. If the characters, for instance, go to a bathhouse, you know, and relax, they go to the sauna and relax for a day, then they mm-hmm. emerge with inspiration, something like that. Something that actually feels like, okay, you're, you're at better than peak performance before you go out on an adventure. Here is your inspiration. For
0: that. Sean Merwin, when, uh, how often, when do you hand out inspiration?
3: it generally depends on what kind of game I'm running. Uh, What I've finally turned to for my home game is telling the players when, when another, when another player does something cool, you give them inspiration, something that inspires you, something that makes you laugh. Uh, But then I will put out tokens to make it a little easier to remember. I find that helps rather than just saying it um, as a reminder. Uh, But I've been all over the place. I've gone for weeks and weeks of games with without giving any, and sometimes I'll hand it out like proverbial candy.
0: <laughs> Dale Kingsmill, uh, your inspiration habits. Is this a, a rule you like, you enjoy using?
1: I'm rubbish with inspiration. I have I have no uh, thoughts in favor or against it, but I just forget about it. If I'm a player and I've been given inspiration, I forget about it. If I'm a DM and a player does something cool, I forget about it. Um, so, I, you know, I'm going to own that. That's all on me. There's nothing wrong necessarily with inspiration. That's all me. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's fair. I, I feel very much the same. I, I very rarely hand it out. Even when I give it to the players, uh, you know, similar to what I think Sean or James were saying, give it to the players to give each other inspiration. Then they instantly forget to do it as well. So um, it is unfortunately- You know what I
1: do is I, I put a D4 on top of my D20 so that I can't pick up the D20 without remembering <laughs> why I put the D4 on top of it. That's my system.
0: Perfect.
2: If I can opine about inspiration for a little bit, it's uh, it it to me seems like an attempt to bridge the gap between two somewhat disparate styles of D&D players. And that's the thing that D&D tries to do a lot. It tries to be a game that everyone can enjoy, which I think is a very noble goal. But it sometimes creates strange, kludgy mechanics like inspiration where it's intended to be a little reward for role-playing. But I, I get the sense that for you and me at least, Dale, uh, the people we play with just kind of like role-playing. And so we don't really need to have a carrot to reward them when they do it. Um, and like, that's that's not, you know, my players are better than yours or anything like that. It's that my players are players who like role-playing, and that's a completely value-neutral statement. So we just don't need or use inspiration very much.
0: Um just to uh well one quick announcement I just quickly wanted to make if it's so interesting you, is that Dale and I will be appearing on a live stream at the end of this week with the Dungeon Dudes wow. uh, playing through uh, a little Drakenheim adventure playtesting or, or showcasing, rather, their apothecary class, which is coming out in Sebastian's Crow's Guide to Drakenheim, uh, which is their current Kickstarter, which is up now. Um, I would throw a link quickly into the chat, but I, I'm going to be too slow, so just Google Sebastian Crow's guide to Drakenheim. Um uh, and I think it's 7 p.m. Eastern time on Thursday is when we will be doing it, which will be 9 a.m. Australian time um, on Friday. Good luck, everybody else. Um, secondly, I did want to fit in a little bit of Spelljammer, just like recap here, but it feels like we have no great time to talk about Spelljammer's given the urgency of the current news. But I did just want to uh, give a quick shout out because, da- oh, oh, you've got yours. There you I go. I wonder where you're going, James. I was like, oh, you must. Have I had to get my spelljammer. The- we lost them. We lost them.
1: Play.
0: Have you had a chance to take a look through it yet? Is it, is it like have. surface level uh, feelings it about looks it? It very pretty.
2: It's gorgeous. I, honestly, it's really cool to see this. I got to put it in front of my face. I can't do it otherwise. I'm not used <laughs> to showing up books on camera. I'm not a YouTuber. Uh, I think it's really cool that it comes as a three-book set. It's something that, uh, much like Spelljammer itself, (laughs) harkens back to an elder age of D&D. And it's very cool that, spoiler alert, the Planescape set they're releasing, I think is
0: taking the same tack. Mm. If I remember the announcement correctly. Um, Have you had, had a chance to flick through it? Are you feeling positive about it generally? I like Spelljammer.
2: I mean, like, <laughs> uh, before Spelljammer came out, we at Ghostfire released our second Fable, Pirates of the Ethereal Expanse, which has a lot of superficial similarities to Spelljammer, even though its its particulars are quite different. Mm. Um, just the the idea of of wooden sailing ships aesthetically in a sort of galactic uh, setting with pirates and weirdos and, you know, most sizely cantina residences. Uh, It's my idea of a good time. So just from a purely aesthetic standpoint, Spelljammer is great. And I think for the very most part, the Spelljammer release does a good job of that. In fact, (laughs) uh, pirates and Spelljammer, uh, Light of Xerixis, the adventure that's uh, bundled with it, share an author in the form of Sadie Lowry. I worked with on Netherdeep as well, and she's fantastic. Um, so I, I love all that stuff. The only thing I think it's missing is uh, ship rules. There's not a lot of rules for piloting or, or battling in Spelljammers, in Spelljammer, which-
1: Reminiscent of Odyssey, uh, the the Odyssey's mythic Odysseys of Theros, I got right. there in oh, the no, they, they pointed you to Saltmarsh if you wanted ship rules.
2: Ah.
1: And I remember being very bitter about it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. And, uh, and, you know, honestly, in the, the in Theros, it's not a, it's not like a Greek trireme. is at all comparable to yeah. a salt marshy, you know, two-masted sailing ship. Anyway, so A uh, Fable's Two Pirates of the Ethereal Expanse does have ship combat rules. And I just want to mm. say-
1: <laughs> Just, you know, if you... <laughs>
2: They're, you know, they're nothing like Spelljammers. They're sailing ships, but they, they operate ship style, right? Spelljammers are these three-dimensional cool things, and that's a big difference. Um, the f- f- Fables has ships that operate on two dimensions, uh, but uh, Spelljammer is great. I, I think this is a top-notch release. I, I really do. It's just It's just missing, I think, an important thing in the form of
0: ship combat. Sure. That's fair. Um, uh, perhaps it could also do, I mean, there's a lot of new, uh, character races in there, but perhaps it could also do with some further explanation of aliens and weirdos, uh, Dale Kingsmill, you have recently released with VJ Harris, uh, on DMs Guild, beings from beyond the horizon, um,
1: beings from, actually I need James to say, it. beings from beyond the horizon,
0: beings from beyond
2: the horizon.
1: See, it's great. He, very handy to have around. <laughs> um, yeah, no, speaking of uh, Mos Eisley Cantina, there was a, a throwaway thing that I mentioned on this podcast, actually. This is where it originated. Um, we first were looking at the Unearthed Arcana races that we uh, assumed correctly were going to be attached to Spelljammer. And I said, they're really cool, but you know what? I wish they would do something a little bit more, um, for lack of a better word, uh, unorthodox, unhinged. Uh, with the with the ancestries and let you kind of make really wild aliens because it's one of my favorite things when you're in a space movie and you go to the Mos Eisley Cantina or you go to Montressa Spaceport and you just see this weird and wild range of um, you know in, just just strange looking uh, beings and uh, so VJ Harris Vic got in contact and said hey do you want to Make something for the DMs Guild that does that, and uh, I was already familiar with their work on "An Elf and an Orc Had a Little Baby," which I think was incredibly innovative, really clever uh, design work. And so I got I got really excited about it. We we got to work on that, and uh, it was a it was a delightful time. And uh, I'm pleased with what we come came up with. We ended up using. Um, so Vic has this incredible breakdown of point values for different racial features that already exist in the game and then guidelines on how to make new features that follow a similar point value. And uh, we ended up utilizing that in a way where you can kind of randomly mash features together to make an alien that's brand new that you don't even know what it's going to be yet. Or you can uh, buy features and stick them together into something that you want, something from Ben 10, I don't (laughs) know, any number of inspiration points that we took. Uh, Or you can start with a a pre-existing... Uh, race from the game and just swap out traits um, according to, to point values. And I don't know, it's really, it's cool. I've I've always loved that sort of, um, I don't know, barn door mix and matching of, uh, of features to create uh, beings. And then we were super lucky um, to get Paul Burrow, who I knew from way, way back in the Geek and Sundry days, uh, who's a sci-fi artist to do a, a cover for the book that was kind of like, I, we wanted it to look like uh, like vintage alien monster movie posters. And that's where we ended up with the title. Um, it's just, it's just a lot of fun. So yeah, you can, you can add tons of really alien aliens to your spell jammer game.
0: <laughs> Get as alien as you wish with beings from beyond the horizon. Uh, on DMs Guild right now, go grab it uh, to add more aliens to your games of Dungeons and Dragons. Speaking. Of Dungeons & Dragons.
1: Speaking of Dungeons & Dragons.
0: Dungeons & Dragons is, some would say, almost singular among the tabletop role-playing game industry, community. It is almost an industry unto itself. It is one Dungeon & Dragon. No longer shall we have uh, editions of Xbox. We will only have one Xbox from now on. We're doing away with uh, console generations uh, wait, sorry, I'm getting confused. Um, <laughs> one, the, I think I'm not, I don't think it's controversial to say, though. the, the, the somewhat, uh, atrociously named, uh, one D&D. Uh, which I feel like we all felt about the Xbox one at the same time. Uh, I'm
1: really glad you mentioned it because I do. I hate the name. It's, <laughs> it's it's like companies do this thing because they think, Oh, it's cool. Cause it signal. it signals, um, you know, completion. And we've finally reached like the, the final ultimate version of the thing. And you do end up making new versions of the yeah. thing. You have Xbox one. It was even 360. That, that did the same thing. Xbox 360, Xbox One, Xbox One Series S. Like it just, it, it's a dark path and we shouldn't go down <laughs> I,
0: it. I feel this. I'm, I'm coining right now uh, Vanilla 5E being a rare, like I had to ask someone just the other day. It was like, all right, so you're going to have to create a character for this. And I was like, okay, maybe in this new and weird world we're living in, do I need to ask, is it Vanilla 5E or are we using the 1D&D? unearthed arcana and i suppose it is an unearthed arcana for now but there is so much to drill into uh, with it remember. i thought i would just invite sean uh, to pick up where he left off a moment ago talking about inspiration or anywhere else he may choose well i mean let's talk about the
3: name because the name has a lot to do with what everything else we're going to be talking about because while we can talk about the mechanics so we can talk about the fun that we have playing it we also have to talk about marketing and we also have to talk about business and Mm -hmm. what do they want? What happens when you announce a new addition, usually sales plummet. So they have to be very careful to not call it a new addition. They have to be very careful to talk about the backward compatibility. They have to be very careful to, uh, Keep hitting that point that everything that you have bought so far, you can still use. And all of these 5, 6, 20, 100 new books, whatever's coming out now, between now and the uh, 2024 release, they want you to buy. They want you to know it's going to be still useful. So people are already getting the name wrong. Even those people who try to to say 1D&D are calling it d one. 1. So It's going to be done with this name change. Exactly. So, so it's, you know, it's, it is what it is. Uh, We can, we'll get over the name. People are going to call it sixth edition or 5.5 or whatever they want to call it. But we will, uh, you know, keep an eye on it, but we will hopefully now focus on more interesting things like what are they
0: putting into one d d well, maybe I was going to start with the mechanics side, but maybe talking about the business side to start with because there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that I think was implicitly said in the announcement from uh, Wizards Presents rather than explicitly said. Um, uh, and uh, I've completely forgotten the question that I was going to ask Sean uh, that kind of linked into that. If you've um, forgotten,
2: I'll seize upon please this momentary go ahead. laughs and give you some time to think. Um, I think. Uh, People who are getting out of sorts about D anD D one need to recall what happened in twenty fourteen, uh, which is when D anD D next became Dungeons and Dragons. And uh, there is something very important to remember here: is a fifth edition also did away with an edition name. We didn't, you know, everyone called it fifth edition because, of course, that's what it is. Uh, but in in early five material, if I am remembering right, there really was not. Much reference to the fact that it was a fifth edition of the game. There was a strong push towards unification of the D&D brand, which was not just an RPG, but also a line of board games and video games and novels. And this was just the RPG version of Dungeons and Dragons. And uh, to be perfectly honest, I think whenever DD one, or sorry, one DD graduates from <laughs> its playtest name, just like DD Next did. Um, People will go right along to calling it 6th edition and eventually five years down the line, even the wizard staff will relent and, and start preferring it as 6th edition. Certainly OGL people will. <laughs> There's so many products that
3: just say 5th edition and don't mention D&D at all because, of course, yeah, they can't. Right. When, when, when the open game and license doesn't allow you to say D&D, you have to call it something. So what's the shortest thing we can call it? 5e. Uh, uses the least amount of characters and and let's move from there yeah yeah
0: it almost yeah. it almost doesn't matter what uh you can't give yourself a nickname so to speak you know because i, I had the same thought i don't think it says fifth edition or 5e i could be wrong about this but in in the player's handbook at least and in the dmg i wouldn't think it, it uses those terms but uh yeah you can't say dungeons and dragons um the the other phrase, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the, this wasn't the question I had before, but I'm just going to jump to this because it's what's in my brain at the moment, um, is the 3D virtual tabletop. When I say yes. uh, they said things implicitly, there was uh, a, phra- a, 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 a bit of phrasing I wasn't very impressed with, which is when they were like, you know, previously you had to cobble together lots of different um, virtual or not virtual tabletops, but lots of different apps to be able to play D&D. Which I feel is somewhat disingenuous to some very excellent virtual tabletops, character creators, um, you know, whether they were using the OGL or, or however they were kind of licensing themselves. Um, and, and, you know, that unification obviously feels from the business side of things um, like we want you to get your DD from us you you know it almost reminds me there's an old phrase that uh, Sean or James might be able to correct me on which was was it Gygax at one point in the past said you're only playing D&D if you're using all of the rules um and this feels very you're only playing D&D if you're on D&D beyond using the virtual tabletop
1: I love the correct assumption that I wouldn't know the Gygax quote.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry Dale I didn't mean to leave you out
1: you were right <laughs>
0: Well,
3: technically he was wrong because I don't know <laughs> well, that quote. I'm un- relieved so. un- <laughs> Yeah, I don't know that uh, quote either. Did we Who uh, okay. invented this
0: quote? Did may- you make it up? Maybe I made it up. Look, <laughs> I may be misquoting. Ben
1: Gary Gagans.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this whole time. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, unmask myself. But, yeah, uh, even with the way that the, the digital codes are being used, is that you can only get your physical product with digital code if you purchase through Wizards directly is my understanding at this point. And, uh, if you do that, you get your digital code two weeks earlier than everybody else, which was, a, 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 you know, speaking of Microsoft, which was a strategy that pre-orders in the video game sphere tried to use, which was like, play the game a week early or whatever. If you, if you get your digital code. So I guess how do we feel about this like push to really, um, you know, it almost feels like cut out the middleman. Maybe that's a little too strong a statement, but but that general kind of implicit uh, vibe that Wizards are giving off about this.
1: I'm not remotely surprised about it. Like, I, what else are they going to do? They're a company that that's the kind of thing that they have to look out for um, on their end. But it is definitely interesting um, to see the way it's being framed. Like, you, like you're saying, a lot of it is this implicit kind of the way that they've wrapped stuff in in language and and the sort of undercurrents of what that means, amongst that you get this this thing of they're saying get it all in one place, but at the same time you're still going to be buying each of those products separately. So ultimately, it, the the thing they're selling you on is um, ease of use, mm. and that will end up being really effective. Um, there's, I mean, it's a slightly different kind of scenario, but when you track levels of piracy, when it is easy to access television shows in one place, even if you have to pay for it, people will pay for it because it's easy. But the minute... So when everything was on Netflix, and I'm not saying that everything should be on Netflix because, you know, monoliths are also um, troublesome. But, you know, when everything was on Netflix, piracy was at an all-time low because you could pay for Netflix and get everything there. And then every other company thought well, why don't we have our own streaming service? Why are we outsourcing this? We should do our own thing. And now we've got a million different streaming services. It's back to being exactly like pay TV was. And piracy is rising again mm. because you can't really justify paying for all these different streaming services when it's not easy, when you have to flip between all of them. Um, so it's that ease of use that is going to be very, very effective in selling that for, for D&D.
2: Wow, that was really, really well
3: said. <laughs> um...
1: I, I thought I
2: had
3: something to add, but Dale, I think you kind of grabbed the entire basket there. I think the one thing, while well, absolutely, Dale hit the, hit the nail right on the head. Um, the one thing to be aware of is in previous editions, uh, the, the digital technologies that Wizards provided were not always robust, were not always easy to use. And in some cases, third parties, even people just doing it in their spare time, were able to create something more useful than Wizards of the Coast could. And there will certainly be people, let's just say, for example, Wizards of the Coast does not allow any other official third-party virtual tabletops to use their stuff. Uh, Even then, people will find ways to use Wizards products on another virtual tabletop, but it will probably not be the case where their versions are better than what wizards can provide, uh, assuming that D Beyond continues its uh, track track record of of putting out pretty good uh, pretty good stuff that's very usable.
2: That's a really good point, Which, Sean. I, I was chatting with a friend of mine uh, over at Paizo the other day about this exact same topic, and we we were puzzling through. Uh, two recent events, two recent acquisitions, one by Wizards, one not by Wizards, um, in which Wizards acquired d Beyond, of course. That is now the backbone of their digital strategy. Mm. However, also, we've talked about this on the podcast in, in prior weeks, Roll20 recently acquired One Bookshelf, which is the parent company of both Drive-Thru RPG and the Dungeon Masters Guild which Wizards has a not insignificantly vested interest in. Uh, it, it gets them a really not insignificant uh, amount of revenue quarter over quarter. And this really raises the question, would Wizards do something that so monolithically competes with one of their partners? Um, when it came to d and Beyond, uh, they didn't build their own digital tool set. They just bought D&D Beyond. But when it comes to VTT, uh, if they were going to buy Roll20, I think they would have done it by now yeah. uh, before announcing that they're doing a virtual tabletop.
1: And you know what was fascinating to me about the virtual tabletop announcement was the visuals, had they bore striking similarity to Tailspire um which is a pre-existing virtual tabletop that focuses on the visuals um it has that same whatever that camera angle is called that makes things look Isometric. tiny it's
2: no they had a f- they had a special f- proprietary there was word a fancy word
1: <laughs> yeah the the, the micro the camera figure
2: um, <laughs> <take your> view <laughs> yeah. this is something yeah. whatever it was yeah just like keto, um, um,
1: <laughs> <a bit> <laughs> Uh, and everything is, is made to look like minis. And you roll dice and you see the dice roll. Like it's it's made to look like a really fancy um tabletop Just game. Like, a stranger like things. it's got forge and everything. <gasps> oh! And um, and you know, it's it's got visuals that are so reminiscent of Talespire that I genuinely thought while watching it that they might have purchased Tailspire. And I haven't been able to find any reference to that actually having happened. So I'm trying to figure out have they built something that is the same? Are they as far along as Talespire are because tailspire have been working really hard. They're a small team. They didn't you know, they kickstarted for I want to say four hundred thousand dollars. like it wasn't the the biggest thing in the world, but they've been chugging along and they've been doing good work. We've seen them on, I think dimension twenty um providing digital sort of environments for for the combat. And it is interesting to me that they've gone in this direction because. Um, Tailspire is a hungry program. Mm. It is visually gorgeous and you can, you can you know, build your own stuff like it with The Sims, but it takes a lot of power from your computer and uh, it takes a lot of buy-in from players and the DM running it. And so it's surprising to me that D&D would go in that direction for their virtual tabletop rather than something that is genuinely accessible and easily usable by everyone because someone with their, you know, dinky five-year-old laptop is going to have trouble running a program like that. And
2: maybe that that is why they will continue partnering with World Running.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm wondering if Roll20 was already working on something like this kind of in the background and and gave them resources.
2: You know, the the other thing on this front, and this is maybe cynical of me, but uh, during that announcement trailer, this new Unreal-powered virtual tabletop is in early development. When it mm-hmm. comes to this new program, I'll believe it when I see it. I've lived through Project Morningstar, through the 4E <laughs> thing, through the 3E thing. Wizards has a bad track record with this sort of thing. And while I now believe that they have really the full support of, of Daddy Hasbro behind them, rather than the sort of tepid support of Daddy Hasbro behind them,
0: uh, this is much more likely, but, but still… <laughs> Does Daddy Hasbro, is that just the Monopoly guy? <laughs> uh, is that who that is? <laughs> just, just it is out Yeah, 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 exactly. Is Monopoly Hasbro? I don't even know. If it, is, it is, it um, is. Yeah, I, I, I sort of thought the same thing. Um, I saw on Twitter somebody kind of saying, who's this VTT for if you can't run it on, you know, if, if you need a high-end laptop to be able to run this thing, it's not going to be really mass marketable in that, Way because I think that the overlap between PC gamers and uh, role players that that Venn diagram isn't as much of an overlap as as you might think. Um, and but how
2: great will it be for streamers with their big gaming rigs who yeah, now right. are able to get sponsored to run D and D streams?
0: Well, the 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 announcement and the way that they shot it as well seemed to indicate that they wanted people to be able to run this on their tablet, right? Like it didn't seem to be flat screen TV down on the the table, that could be one use of it or it could be online use. But I think, you know, similar to the Switch rooftop party uh, kind of like demonstration yeah. of use case, they had people sitting at a table with their VTT on their iPad or whatever or on their tablet in front of them kind of all looking at the same thing. Um, and so it makes me wonder what if they do sort of a streamed game solution where they're processing everything. Um, you're not running it on your own computer. It's more that you log into something and then uh, you kind of run it that way. But that relies on a really good internet connection. So
1: The RuneScape method. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah exactly. That would, that would certainly be an interesting solution. And it would
2: square with what I'm assuming is going to be a subscription model rather than a purchase model.
1: Which, for the record, I'm still wary of, but we've been there before. Like, so. but, but what's the
0: model as well, right? Because my understanding from the announcement seemed to indicate, uh, and I don't think they out and out said this, so this may be me making things up, but it seemed to indicate that it's like, all right, when you buy an adventure like, you know, the Fandelver adventure next year, maybe not that one, but like whatever in the future, Curse of Strahd, you get the tiles and the art assets to create the Curse of, uh, Curse of Strahd dungeons and they're already created for you. You know, here's Castle Ravenloft all beautifully 3D rendered with all the levels and everything. And then you get those tiles or, or pieces or art assets, pardon me, to fit together the way that you want to, to create your own dungeon. But does this mean like the
1: Sims? Like, <laughs> yeah,
0: exactly. But does this mean that you have to purchase the adventures to get access to a wider variety of, dungeon tiles, you know, if they're selling them only in, like, adventure packs.
1: I I mean, mean, I'm purely speculative, but I don't think that it would be difficult to separate those things, right, to both bundle it with an adventure and then also have a separate cost and you can buy it as its own asset pack. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that would be outside the realms of imagination. Can I say- just really quickly, what my most ludicrous reaction to the one D&D playtest stuff was so that it's out of the way, so it's just mm-hmm. out there. My immediate, <laughs> my immediate reaction, it has a different, okay, I didn't notice that I had a synesthetic um, color sort of association <laughs> with tabletop RPG mechanics <laughs> until now. Um, but I don't like the color of this as much as the color of Five E. But that couldn't just be because it's playtest material, honestly. I mean,
0: what what color are you referring know. to? Are you referring to the red of the like logo? No.
1: Okay. So, so it, it's, synesthesia. it's not a Literal <laughs> color. Yeah. So, okay, synesthesia is a thing where um, you associate so your 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 senses get crossed in your brain, basically, and you just have uh, associations between one sense and another sense. So like very extreme versions could be there's a man out there in the world who when he hears things, he tastes things. Right. That's a very extreme version, a very common version. Uh, which my siblings and I discovered that we have when we were arguing about the color of Wednesday as children, um, is that we associate concepts and words with colors or numbers with colors, things like mm. that. So you know, I I know that my name is green. You know, <laughs> this is <laughs> Ben as a name is blue, but Ben as a person is red. James's name is uh, is red, and Sean's name is blue, but a different blue to Ben's. Ben's is dark blue. Um, so you know, just things like that, right? But uh, this I should. This is long, and I'm sorry. D and D five e the mechanics have kind of a jewel tone, like green, um, which I enjoy. <laughs> Whereas the other Arcana that we've seen for one D and D is a little bit closer to the four e color, which is like a light blue, but there's more gray in it. But I think that it might it might change colors as it becomes not playtest material. As we see stuff that isn't character creation, we'll see. But just for the record, it may color the rest of my opinions.
3: Uh-huh. Ah, Good joke. I got, color? I got that. I got that. But I have. A, I have a very important question, then, <laughs> Dale. What color is Fate Accelerated?
1: Ooh. Uh, Fate Accelerated is it's light blue, but it's um it's higher in vibrancy.
0: Okay.
1: Than fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Um, so Thank we've you. also learned four A is blue. <laughs> um. Speaking of the unearthed Arcana uh, <laughs> and its amazing technicolor, um, what do we think? What, what, where, where do we want to start in terms of like cracking into this rule set? What, what do we like? What don't we like? Can we start with um, the new race, the Ardlings?
1: Yeah, the,
2: what's the that animal about? The animal-headed celestial beings. Interesting to have a celestial player race uh, by default. It is not the Asimar who mm. has so often been the counterpart to the tiefling. Mm. Um, I, I'm not sure I have much of substance to say about them other than they're there. Cool. I'm interested in them. I don't know much about them. Um,
1: I'm surprised. Yeah. I, I was surprised when when it was like, oh, and your animal appearance um, will be categorized by your blah, blah, blah background. You know, the whatever the new sub races, whatever they're lineage. called now. Lin- lineage. Thank you. Um, it's, it, you know, divided up by that. I was expecting them to be categories that like ran on a theme, you know, I was expecting sort of, um, prey animals and predator animal or birds or something, you know, I was expecting lists like that, but it was really like, you could be a cat, you could be an eagle, you could be a goat. I don't remember what they were, but they had nothing in common with one another. And I'm like, I will absolutely have to look at this list. Yeah. So
2: (laughs) the, the exalted legacy is cat, eagle, goat, mule as their suggested animal. The heavenly legacy has elephant, owl, pig, and stork. And the idyllic legacy has bear, dog, raven, and toad.
1: Yeah, so like I'm on board, but I'm a little confused.
2: <laughs> it is yeah. very interesting.
0: I mean, I, I wonder if there's like mythological connections, mate. I mean, Dale, maybe you you might know that because they were talking about how in you know Egyptian mythology. Egypt isn't
1: my specialty, so I mean, there could be, and I just am not aware of it. Mm. But
2: there, there just it
0: isn't Although, very
1: much. Toads info and pigs here. aren't really
3: right. I can, can we step ahead, all do. the way back and 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 say, are are we are we surprised that it is as much like five E as as it is? Were, were we expecting something no. a little more Not different? Were really. uh, okay. you? Uh, literally, I was hoping. Uh, and, and this mm. is just a play test, obviously. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, part of me was skeptical because with 4th edition, they sort of said, well, 5th edition, you'll be able to play just like 4th edition, or you'll be able to play a version of the next edition like it's more similar to fourth and they obviously did not do that and when they said this next version will be backwards compatible my first thought was that's too bad because i'm i'm like i'm looking for a new design i'm looking for something different i'm looking for something that wows me in in a way that fifth edition I mean, did, I I love fifth edition, but what the, the, the designer in me, right? The, the player that wants to play something different said, all right, what are you going to show me? And what they showed me was we really didn't redesign anything. We are going to Mm -hmm. cosmetically move traits around a bit. We're going to move ability scores to a different place, but it's, it's definitely the same chassis. And so part of me is like, okay, good it's compatible. We're going to be fine. And then part of me, is like, Oh, that's, I, I I want something different. And that's just me personally, as a, as a designer, right. I, I understand why they're doing it this way. And they would upset a lot of people if they did something completely different. Uh, But I was, I was just, I always go back to what does, what does a role-playing game do for us? Um, What do the rules, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to give us a way to resolve conflict and tell a story. Uh, So we need the rules, but we also need a setting, right? The the rules also speak to the world in which this game takes place. And the world also helps us tell a story. Uh, The the rules help us tell a story. And so I'm looking at all of the ways where things work together. We talk about inspiration, right? Inspiration comes almost it's almost a weak version of fate uh points from from fate right inspiration was supposed to be your character does something that speaks to its background just like aspects do in fate so when you do that and there was almost this implicit when you play your character in a way that's detrimental to their character's success, but you do it because your character would be that way or do that thing. Here's your here's your later benefit for that. And almost immediately, that was thrown out to, oh, you made everybody laugh. You did something cool. Okay. So I wanted to see inspiration move back to bring the, the personality, bring the role playing in the story together with the mechanics. And instead, it's almost moving in the opposite direction of, oh, you rolled an natural 20? Have inspiration, so you succeed here. you can succeed more later. I don't know, which sort of takes away from me the the drama that story and and rules can create when they work well together.
2: It's very interesting, I think that that inspiration is becoming a win more sort of button uh, there have been I I don't like just parroting what I see on social media, but I did think this was a really great idea. Uh, people have talked about moving that gain inspiration on a on a critical to the critical failure to a to a natural mm-hmm. one, and I think that's something that D and D has had a problem with, or not a problem with, but like it has not reflected for its entire lifespan. Which is you in real life often learn more from your failure than you do in your success. You know, and in D and D you gain experience for winning, uh, not for losing. So having a way to gain inspiration from failure, it seems like it seems like a nice little bit of, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, softening the blow, but also a little bit of realism, as weird as it sounds.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you think about, um, there are games out there, I, I think uh, Monster of the Week, which is is empowered by the apocalypse um but you know there are there are game systems out there where explicitly you progress by failing Mm -hmm. you have to do badly in order to level or or, you know achieve the equivalent of leveling um but it's it's interesting just hearing you both talk about it thinking that i think what is how i feel about it is starting to become clear in that um I, because, because this was pitched, um, on sort of in, in the whisper circles for so long as, um, you know, 5.5 E, uh, I wasn't expecting it to be, you know, brand new design. I wasn't expecting it to bring me, you know, super innovative stuff. I was expecting it to kind of go back and renovate everything that was already existing in 5 E, um, that needed some, some renovation, but, Now that I'm stopping and thinking about it, it is interesting that with what they're calling currently one D&D and they're like, this is this is the ultimate version of D&D. We've finally reached fantasy tabletop RPG (laughs) Shangri-La. You know, they are kind of taking D&D stuff and concentrating it. Rather than taking these these little mechanics that we're pointing out from other games, they're going, what did D&D do? How can we do that more? Mm. How can we take the d and D&D from previous D&Ds and put them in this D&D to consolidate its d and ness
2: mm. And in fairness, 5e did that too.
1: It's the way it goes. It's a, there's a There's a folk element to tabletop RPGs that I think... Um, I don't I I'm not genuinely like scared that it'll disappear. I don't think I think, uh, you know, folk uh, engagement is hard to eradicate. Right. But there is something that, again, is that sort of implicit way that we're using language um, or that wizards are using language in this release, which is kind of doing that. We've reached Shangri-La thing. Right. It's saying. The point is to reach a version of it that never needs to be updated again, Yeah, which is what Pathfinder did as well. And look how that went. But, um, (laughs) you know, it's it's that thing of we've made it, we've done it, we're finally here. And um, that seems a little bit like, um, I don't know, naively self-aggrandizing. Yeah. if I'm if I'm to be a little bit uncharitable about it, because I think that one of the cool, fun folk things about D and D is that every ten years or so you get a new team of people working on it, and they're inspired by such new and and varied things that it fundamentally changes what the game looks like, the shape of it, yeah. um, and you know it in that way it is ever changing but ever present. When, I... uh,
2: right, when, when I was first getting into D and D, sorry Ben, go ahead. When I was when I was first getting into D and D, I was often on d message boards, it, upon which the edition wars ran rampant. And one of the things that people talked about whenever an edition war was happening were the sacred cows of D&D, things like natural 20s and ability scores and things that are so uh, fundamental to the identity of D&D that they can never be removed. On those boards, people talked about sacred cows like they were bad things. Um, if D and D would be so much better if it didn't use a D twenty with its bad randomization curve, it would be better if it were more like this other game that uses three D six. It would be better if it had four ability scores, if it had eight ability scores, if the ability scores were called, you know, something else other than what they are now, and. Um, it always surprises me. It, did, it didn't surprise me then. I didn't have much of an opinion on it back then. But now looking back, it surprises me to hear those opinions stated so vehemently by you know self-professed fans of D&D. They love D&D so much as a concept, but it would be so much better if it were less like d and I, I find myself of two minds in this situation now, where it's like on one hand, I think things like natural 20s and D20s and six ability scores are uh, fundamentally D&D and I wouldn't change me if I wanted to. But on the other hand, I, I like the way that d d learns from other games. I-, I-, I like the way that indie game design eventually, uh, you know, concentrates up like a tuna fish devouring all these other smaller fishes into <laughs> mainstream d design. My metaphor is to DD design is apparently about Mercury content. I'm not sure um, <laughs> what I'm getting at there. Uh, <laughs> But um, <laughs> but the thing is, I like it when D&D has a wide variety of inspirations and it is a little bit distressing, Dale, like you talk about for D&D to become incredibly insular and sort of inward looking like this.
1: Which it might not, but I, I also think it's funny to, to hear um, the idea of natural 20s as being like a core element of the game because to me that is a great example of a folk element of the game. Everyone's version of a nat 20 and what it does and when it happens is slightly different. You know, it changes from table to table. And I always feel a little bit like get your grubby fingers off my crits, Whenever, whenever it gets really (laughs) formalized within the rules. I'm like, don't tell me what to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's fair.
0: I think the, uh, just to touch on very quickly with what Dale was saying a second ago, the self-aggrandizing, I don't think it's naive at all. I think it's very deliberate and that's why it, rem- if it's a real quote, it's why it reminds me of that Gary Gygax quote of, you know, you're only playing D&D if you're playing with all the rules because the intention of that being said at the time was to get people to purchase advanced D&D and, and all the books to be able to, um, you know, because there were spinoffs and, and you know, Pathfinder-like games in those early uh, years of the game that were trying to, you know, muscle in on D&D's market share. Um, and it was like it's only D&D if it's this much. And I think that that's a, a very deliberate strategy. And I think it's maybe why they've shot so high with the virtual tabletop. To not just be like a flat map, but to be this beautiful, like 3D, fully rendered, move the mouse around. You can measure out distances. It all looks amazing because they don't want to have a virtual tabletop. They want to have the virtual tabletop within the the marketplace um, because D&D is the role-playing game within the marketplace. Sorry, Sean, you were about to say something. Please go ahead.
3: Oh, I, I was just going to talk about uh, the role of marketing again. In this, uh, because mm-hmm. while we uh, what we're seeing is a play test, obviously, and so we will be able to give feedback, and that feedback will hopefully tell Wizards of the Coast what people think they want, and then Wizards can give the people what they think they want, and then they can ask, well, here's what you said you want. What do you really want? And then they can go, how do you mesh what people really want? With what Wizards can and is willing to and must give people to meet whatever business goals, whatever marketing goals um, that that they have sitting behind all of this design. And the marketing and the business goal might be don't change anything while changing things. Or it may be, you know, maybe something different. We don't know. Um, And we probably never will know, although we can step back and based on what we see come up with what what their marching orders probably were or are. Mm. But it's it's you know, it's it's a it's a constant uh, battle of all of these different influences and inputs and and making a really great role playing game versus making a really popular role playing game. And are those two the same thing? If it's really popular, does it mean it's good? <laughs> or can it be bad, but still be very popular Yeah, you know, in terms of mechanically balanced, you know, in terms of all these things. And and there are no right answers to these questions I'm spouting. Uh, although we can, we can uh, yeah, speculate on all of them. Oh, this is so it's
1: exciting. Not a job that I envy. <laughs> it's
3: just like 2012 all over again. Everyone
2: go look Woo! up that one penny arcade comic about the D D next playtest and how all of these people and their desires do not mesh even in the slightest bit. That Mm -hmm. that, that comic is perfectly prescient for exactly what's going to happen right now. Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, We got an email from Beckett um, who was asking about incorporating community feedback into rules design work um, and how that usually tends to pan out. Um, uh, They were talking specifically about 2012 about D and D next uh, when that was happening and there was a lot of interesting design work in there. If I'm not mistaken, James, uh, they actually had ability scores tied with backgrounds first. I feel like I read that on Twitter, but that could be wrong. Um, But you know, just using that as an example of of a bunch of ideas that they had for D and D next that ultimately got thrown out. Um, uh, whether it's because of, of community feedback or not, that's what uh, Beckett sort of seems to indicate was their perception of the time. And so how does community feedback influence uh, the D&D or the one D&D play test and how does it influence the future of the game in terms of how much Wizards listen to their audience versus how much they, you know, just trust in their own expertise, I suppose.
2: The thing that community-driven feedback tends to do is it tends to drive design towards whatever is most popular, mm. and maybe that sounds obvious, but uh, it has a lot of very specific implications in what it means. Um, it means that a, a D&D whose design is driven by community feedback is less likely to have catastrophic failure in the case of like fourth edition, for example, which by a lot of metrics was a pretty good game. But because it aggravated, it, it, it didn't just disappoint, it actively aggravated a not insignificant part of the d and fan base. It was a catastrophic failure. Um, and what this means, it, like I said, there's a lot of different meanings here. On, on the plus side, this is a d and that everyone can get behind. This is a d and you can basically always find a table for. That's fantastic. Um, it's a d and that's easier to teach people. Um, if you want to be, if you want to take a dimmer view of it, it's a DD that's kind of, you know, watered down. It's a DD that's very genericized and bland and it doesn't have all those rough edges that some people like and some people don't like. And, you know, those idiosyncrasies are are very, very fun for people who like very specific things. Um, and, you know, I, I'll, I'll opine for a little bit. I, I think that a baseline of D&D is a good thing. It leaves the specific stuff up to the more niche publishers like us. For, you know, Wizards is not going to release a blood and guts dark fantasy module, most likely. Uh, That's that's what Ghostfire does. They're not going to release a highly fourth edition inspired tactical pet class. That's what MCDM does. Uh, You know, there's all of these reasons for third parties to exist. And a very sort of common ground D&D fosters a good environment for
1: that. I also think that um, doing releasing a playtest like this, even though it does, I mean, for the record, there's a lot that I like about this playtest. I feel like we're, we're just ending up talking about the the slightly more <laughs> negative or existential stuff because that's the juicy stuff for a podcast. But there's a lot sure. that I like about it. But, you know, it does drive this kind of conversation. What do we hate about the new rules, right? But at the same time, it's acclimatizing us to this stuff. You know, you, you hear that Netflix is going to add ads to- <laughs> To the lowest cost version of their thing and you're outraged about it, but you get used to the idea over time. So you're not surprised when it happens and it doesn't matter as much to you when it happens. And a similar thing is, is going to happen here where, you know, some stuff that people are complaining and making a lot of noise about right now will change and other stuff will stay. But by the time it comes out, it's not going to be the end of the world anymore. Mm. Um, And that's, it's fine. You know why? Because it's not, the final version of D They will make future editions <laughs> of the game that will have their own bad stuff and good stuff. Um, you know, it's
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll be interested to know if this just becomes known as six D in the end, uh, you know, as Fabi did.
2: <laughs> I think the most likely case for one DD, whatever it ends up being, is that it will essentially be a world of warcraft as ties DD. And I don't mean that in the way that it like fourth edition was often lab- labeled the World of Warcraft DD. I mean, it will be DD as a live service business model. Um, right. You will get regular updates to the way the core of the game functions. Uh, that you might even call them expansion packs. We call them splatbooks. You know, it, it's the same sort of thing that will constantly be tinkering with the core of the game. Uh, and through services like D and D Beyond, uh, you know, you'll be able to do patch notes very, very easily. Um, there may be some something to learn from the way Fourth Edition did Errata there, uh, but. For the most part, I, I think it's entirely possible we will never see a new edition of D&D. It, w- it will just be D&D. And by the time, you know, 10 years have passed, we'll have ship of Theseus
3: itself into a new edition of D&D. But where does one end and where does the other begin? True. <laughs> sure. sure. uh, in terms say, of community Sean? feedback, uh, you know, one of the best ways to get community feedback is not to ask, but to watch. It's not to ask. What do you like? What do you think of this? It's to go on in D&D Beyond and see what character class everyone's using. And we now see feats becoming something that everyone is going to be using. Well, why would they add feats when they didn't use them or they used them as optional in, in 5e, maybe because the feedback they got was feats are a little too complicated for most people. We want to keep it simple. We'll make it optional. But when you see everybody playing the variant human on D&D Beyond, you know that they're taking that not because of all the cool things that the human gets, they're taking it because they get a free feat. So while people might hmm. say feats are complicated and we don't want it in our core game, uh, the use bears out a different story, which has now become the feedback that
0: has left, led us to backgrounds, including a feat. I think there's also that feedback, um, that backgrounds, the background feature, um, seemed to be based around like, you know, it's not a mechanical advantage. It's not a, 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 um, you know, something that makes you better in combat or, or anything like that. It's a a place to eat and sleep as it turned out to be more often than not. But, uh, you know, they've, that, that, the feet seem to be replacing that in terms of like, and that, that seems to be honestly, now that I think about it, um, the design for this unearthed arcana, at least overall, is taking some things that were sort of floaty and up here, like inspiration, like uh, natural 20s, what happens when when you get one, um, and like, you know, those sort of like background features and really grounding them with a mechanical buff that, that sort of, you know, "Quote unquote matters in the game. Those other things definitely mattered, but but this has—you'll never forget about inspiration now because you get it whenever you roll a natural twenty, or the the musician plays a song and people get it during their their short rests. Go ahead, Dale.
1: Oh, I was just gonna say uh, that. Yeah, it's is having all this stuff pinned down. I actually think a lot of it is a step in the right direction. Right? Like I." I have been on the record on this podcast before being like, grumble, grumble, I don't know how I feel about these feats attached to, like, actual feats attached to backgrounds. That seems complicated, even though it is ultimately actually what I wanted. I just didn't really want them to be called feats and have to look them up in a separate part of the book. Mm. But... It actually functionally makes sense. What I would love to see is um, some of them that really bolster mechanically the other pillars of play, because backgrounds are a great opportunity to to give you feats that give you mechanical boosts to exploration and social pillars rather than combat. Because the combat ones that we're seeing are dope, totally badass, but we've got so many of them that I, I feel like that would be cool to just just push it a little bit further. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I feel about a lot of this stuff. I think uh, moving the ability score increases to background, I've been begging that drum forever. That's great. Love that. Um, then there are things like moving language from uh, race choice to background choice is I'm glad that we've moved it away from being implicitly tied to race, but it doesn't quite make sense where it is in background either. It's strange to me that they're like you're a charlatan so you speak the language of hell. Um, <laughs> you're a gladiator, you know- <laughs> so you speak
2: the language of orcs because
0: gladiators are Yeah. Orcs. <laughs> yeah, they kind yeah, of have exactly. the same oh. the same problem of uh Yeah, you're a town
1: languages. guard. Yeah, you're a town guard so you speak dwarvish cuz the people who make the armor are dwarves and I'm like, "Okay, but now you're just getting into my world building." Uh, yeah. can shoot. Um and then they followed up by saying, "Also, pick another extra language just whatever you want." And I, I I feel like if you were willing to do that, just do that anyway. Just have the languages floating. Ask some questions about it. That's a fine way to build a character. Say, "Pick a language. Why do you know mm. it?" Do you have a friend who speaks that language? Um, did you grow up in, you know, a town of, give, give leading questions and get people to create a character based on that? Because that's what backgrounds are doing anyway. Well,
0: I feel like that's what they, I feel like that's what they, <laughs> th- like they want to do, right? Because that they've basically said, like, you can invent your background is first. And I think uh, Jeremy Crawford said this in that, that hour long discussion. The intention is you can create your background first, or if you need some suggestions, here are some, rather than here are the backgrounds, or you can create your own if you want to. And I get the sense that when they were writing the charlatan, they came to language and they were like, oh, we need a language. What language does a charlatan speak? And someone <laughs> from the other side of the office was like, <laughs> infernal. Why do you, it's
1: sign language? Yeah. They've got sign language not now. Not Give them f- infernal wow. yet.
0: All right. We've got to make write it? it. Yeah, infernal.
1: Liars go to hell, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sean, go ahead. No,
3: I mean, why are we not just tying a bill? Either choose whatever ability score you want, or tie it to class. Why are we playing this game of putting, putting ability score increases in other places where it just it focuses? Now, well, I want to be a fighter. I have to check which background gives me a bonus to strength. Well, I guess I'm going to be a soldier or whatever uh, gives the bonus to strength. Why? Why do that? Why make you well, why make uh, the i mean dale Dale said it all it's like right why why pigeonhole the character that I want to create? why build the world for me when you're trusting me to do all this other work as the dungeon master? why put these things in there that
0: Pigeonhole my world. I think I think what they're trying to do is the opposite. Honestly, in terms of trying to make like the the backgrounds they have in this UA, I really think are, are only meant as examples so that you can create your own background that does work for you and the GM's world. Uh, the reason not to tie it to, to classes. I have this dude who plays in my game. Um, he's one of my best friends for, for for since primary school. Love him to bits. I don't know if he he watches this podcast or not, but He loves a suboptimal build. And at the moment he's playing, he's actually playing a monster hunter, but he started as a fighter and his like strength score is in the toilet. Uh, But his intelligence score is really high because he just wants to play this like ordinary dude who is thrust into um, extraordinary circumstances. He doesn't want to play like a high intelligence wizard. He doesn't want to be a mage. He just wants to play this like, you know, guy that ends up becoming a hero over the course of playing the campaign uh, which is hilarious because we get into combat situations and it's like, all right, Thomas, it's your turn. What are you doing? He's like, I, I didn't bring any weapons. I don't, I don't carry weapons. I throw a brick at him. I don't know. And it's like, oh, damn it, Thomas, why didn't you bring your spear? Um, hilarious for the GM, maybe frustrating for the other players. But I think that's maybe why they've tried to put it in backgrounds and not, not tie it to anything else.
2: I think that character concept is delightful. It's a very literary sort of character. I think that it's in the vast minority of the types mm, of characters that will be played in fifth edition. And so, you know, if if we tie ability Billy sort of class, for example, yes, it does kind of step on the character concept, but wouldn't the net gain uh, of simplifying that aspect of character creation and then be be better than, you know, this one person comes to you and says, I, I want to play a kind of a kind of a goofus who becomes a hero can I have my plus one to strength from fighter be a plus one to intelligence instead? And the GM is like, yes, of course. Why is this a question? Sure, <laughs> you know? sure, sure, sure. Yeah.
1: It's also interesting to me, um, as someone who I held off on 5e for a really long time, partially because the backgrounds felt stifling to me, even though you can make your own background, you know, the, the way that they talk about designing your own background still feels like, it, it felt like you were forced to, to do some things with your background that I wouldn't have otherwise chosen for myself. Whereas something like Pathfinder, which I was playing at the time, is very um, finicky, granular. You build it yourself. Um, and I could see that the backgrounds were intended to like draw you towards character and role playing. You know, it tells you You were a sailor. So that is like a backstory for you if you struggle to make a backstory. Um, But I think mechanically, they've always struggled to actually encourage that, which is why I think some feats should be about roleplay or exploration Mm -hmm. um, in a way that doesn't negate roleplay and exploration because that has been (laughs) kind of... The, the key fault in attempts to do that uh, thus far has been, ah, this will help you in exploration by making you not have to worry about it ever, <laughs> um, which, which is not ideal. I do think it's interesting that, I mean, there's so many little mechanical implications, but feats are clearly core now. Up until now, they have been quote unquote optional, right? But now feats are clearly becoming a central part of the game. This is this is absolutely part of the game. Now, it's interesting that they call them first level feats, which indicates that you're going to have um, possibly a structure more similar to fourth edition where it's like you hit this level, you choose a feat. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, seeming to me like it might be not only um, a, a present element of the game, but uh, an encouraged, a pushed one. I need better words.
2: It it strikes me in hindsight now that, um, remember those Dragonlance backgrounds that had feats in them?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Remember how everyone got all bent out of shape after
2: that? Well, (laughs) yes, of of course they have feats in them because they're being designed with this (laughs) rule
1: Yeah, that's where they seem (laughs) to be going. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Which, again, acclimatized me so that I wasn't shocked and horrified when I saw it in this. I think,
0: uh, you know, like Sean said earlier, they've got the data through D&D Beyond. And I think it might have been in the episode with uh, Kelly and Monty that we were talking about feats. And it was like, yeah, they're an optional rule, but probably (laughs) 90% of tables play with them because or, you know, and- and Uh, a lot of the things that they're kind of grounding in this in terms of like uh, critical hits or or getting inspiration on an At-20, a feat in your background, all that sort of stuff seems to be taking a lot of things that were optional for the GM originally and really giving them to the players so that a universal experience is felt rather than getting to another table and the GM going, oh, I don't use feats or, oh, I'm sorry, I forget about inspiration all the time. I don't really use it. When that player might really enjoy being able to figure out ways to get inspiration or really enjoy building feat-based characters. Um, We are going a little bit over time, but I want to do a quick lightning round. We had a bunch of questions in the chat that I didn't want to interrupt the conversation to ask. So I apologize, chat. Um, How we feel about the new critical hit rules. Uh, I'm assuming specifically the fact that GMs can no longer critical hit, uh, the fact that uh, a natural 20 quote-unquote always succeeds which i don't think it does in the rules as they've written it um but that seems to be the takeaway everybody's taken uh from the new uh, crit rules how do we feel about these i'll do a blitz style uh
2: ability checks can crit good well oh, the the gm can't crit mixed makes encounter design easier lessons lessons explosive fun and dnd thrives on explosive fun 30 seconds or less <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, Sean, your 30 seconds starts now. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> I pass. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll give you a second to think about it and maybe an extra 10 minutes. Uh, Dale, what? Uh, how do you feel?
1: I mean, I feel like I already said my thing. I feel like crits should be part of the the folk element of the game and should be table to table. So I just, I, I don't have strong feelings about necessarily how they've been implemented, but I just have strong feelings about them, um, you know, setting it in stone.
0: Mm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sean, anything you want to add or you're, you're playing no. on this one? No,
3: I, I think it's fine. I think we will see changes to it. Um, I like the fact that you only double the dice, the, the weapon dice rather than sneak attack, Paladin, smite, all of that. Uh, I think that helps mm. with encounter balances. James was talking about as well.
0: Question from uh, four nine one Phantom: uh, Do you think Wizards of the Coast will restrict D and D Beyond use on third party VTTs uh, when they release their VTTs? So my understanding, just for my sake and anybody who doesn't quite understand this, sake, uh, Roll Twenty, I believe, and maybe some others have like plugins with D and D Beyond, allowing you to basically. Port your character in. Is that correct? Yeah, Beyond Twenty
2: is a common sort of bootstrapping right application, and I do not really know how it works. I'll uh, on this like, one. I'm not on... smart enough to answer it.
3: <laughs> Beyond Twenty is not an official licensed thing for anyone. It is simply something that was created that will sit in your browser and do the work for you. Uh, as far as I know, and that may have changed recently, but That's, that's the thing. So it is not, it is not, that does not make people happy on the business side of things. It makes players very happy. Uh, So there you go. Mm.
1: If anything, we might see something similar to like after Halo. Um, I think Bungie licensed out a bunch of like Halo usage rights to mobile games. And then over time they were like, wait, we want to make the mobile games. And so they just let those, contracts die out slowly over time. I don't think there's going to be any kind of hard line. You can no longer use it right now. I think that there probably are pre-existing agreements that have uh, expiry dates and they will just let them run out if anything. Um, But I don't think that necessarily means that it will uh, stop them from existing because there are enterprising people out in the world who um, write programs and make plugins and add-ons and um, something like like Roll20 is designed to uh, be programmed and accept plugins and add-ons. So I I think it'll be a complicated situation even if it ends up being uh, legally straightforward.
0: Gotcha. Um, I'm just quickly going to do a quick scroll here. Uh, One other question coming in from uh, Fen Fern uh, is how about them new grappling rules, huh? Aren't they a thing? Yeah. How does, how does slowed work? <laughs> Good name, Fenfer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I discovered through Twitter, apparently I'm the only one who has a problem with grappling. Uh, I've, I've had monsters pushed on their back and then grappled to the ground and then everybody just like kicking it in the ribs and wailing upon it. Uh, <laughs> uh, a couple of times too many for me to feel comfortable with grappling, getting a bit of a buff. Um,
1: I don't know. I don't know. I feel like grappling's always been um, a bit underwhelming. So <laughs> I, maybe, maybe you and I just have different experiences. Um, I'm, I'm not. I don't love the new grappling rules, but I didn't love the earlier grappling rules. So I'm no. kind of, uh, I'm ambivalent. <laughs> I
2: was very happy when Fifth Edition released the simplest grappling rules I've ever seen, um,
3: and I don't need to be any more complicated than that. Oh, There's already questions that I have uh, based on what's written here, which is you cannot escape using an action as it's written. Uh, You can only attempt to escape at the end of each of your turns, which means if you escape, you have no move left, so you're still standing next to whatever was grappling you. So if it's just Mm -hmm. you on your turn trying to do something, uh, there's also this weird thing about... If you are grappling someone and you move them, you are slowed while you're moving. And if mm. you are slowed, mm. attack rolls against you have advantage. So how does that work with mm. opportunity attacks? Is Are you technically moving or does the opportunity attack come before you are moving? So you're not slowed until you move. And what if I ready an action to attack you as you're moving? If you're grappling something and you're slowed, do then I have advantage it's it's already all this weird stuff, and as James said, leave Back it be. Back to complicated
2: grappling.
0: <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> <Woo>!
0: <laughs> well, d- does the grappled have advantage against the grappler when the grappler is moving the grappled? That's a g- very good question. I'm just asking oh, geez. the questions.
1: Oh, yes. This just just terminology the is going to get tricky uh, quick. Um, there's a question from Ishmael Ishmingsmil. Uh, which is about, (laughs) which is about, uh, how do we feel about the arcane, divine, or primal, uh, categories of spells?
0: Great. No problem. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Grim Hollow already kind of tried to, to split though. I mean, they've already been sort of broadly split, I think, in people's minds. Um, the one, the one thing I have about that is whether that ends up solidifying um, you know, there, there, there's a lot of talk. I think it's the, the storm sorcerer technically can't take lightning bolt. Is it, is, is that, am I thinking correctly there? There's some, there's Call some leading. like lightning themed spell a sorcerer can't take. Yeah. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of, uh, because it's technically not on their spell list. And most GMs will just be like, ah, well take it. Who cares? Like it's fine. Uh, I would imagine, um, uh, but does does splitting these out obviously broadens the spell list so that obviously a sorcerer would in theory have access to more spells. But does the way that these spells work get more calcified? in those three definitions meaning like anything outside of a divine spell can't technically be a healing spell because that is only the domain of like divine spell casting so could you not create a a healing wizard you know you probably want to create a already
2: isn't Isn't it though Uh,
0: broadly yeah I, i suppose that's true um
1: i think that it's uh i think it's largely neat um Having having this switch, I think, I mean, I'm assuming that with these spell lists, we're dropping the individual caster class spell lists, which is great. Um, But I do think it's interesting the way that they've been divvied up. But I'm realizing that it's just kind of my own sort of associations. But seeing, for example, warlocks in the arcane spell list instead of the primal spell list surprised me a little bit. and I, I can't fully voice why. But uh, that was a, a little moment where I went, ooh, we're going to end up with some fuzzy lines. Well, maybe
0: it's a thing of like if you take, uh, and and for the record, I think Jeremy Crawford did say again in that, in that D&D Beyond podcast thing that he did that they're not doing away with spell lists entirely. There may still be some more specific spell lists, maybe for subclasses more so than whole classes. Maybe it becomes a thing of like if you are a Pact of the Fiend or a Pact of the Great Old One I'm sure they might rename and rejig those entirely. Um, but that sort of style packed warlock, you draw your magic from the arcane spell list. If you're a pact of the Fey or a pact of the elemental or primordial or whatever, then you draw your spells from the primal spell list. And so it creates greater variation between
1: Which honestly would be pretty it's cool. cool. To me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what yeah. is so it? It harkens seems back to cool? seem too with their four power
2: sources, you know, mm. Martial, yeah. Arcane, Divine, and it wasn't primal, but it was something. You know, similar
1: something. I should know, but I don't.
0: What if they? What if they conflate the druid and the wizard, and they just make them one class? But if you choose to draw spells from the arcane spell list, you're a wizard, and if you choose to draw them from the from the uh, he's gone mad with champion. power, be a bold, bold move. <laughs> he has to
1: be stopped. <laughs> I
0: I like that idea, but it's because I feel like uh, the wild shape of the druid, while it is. It's the druids' thing, you know. It's the druids' sneak attack. It's the druids' divine smite. It's the yeah. it's the heart of the class. I do feel like I want to play just a wizard. That's class. a druid uh, most of the time instead, um, but that's my low dark fantasy self speaking. Anyway. That is probably more than we have time for this week. Uh, so we're going to leave it there. Golly, I just want to um, keep talking forever. I mean, look, it's your time. So you tell me uh, <laughs> if you want to keep talking forever. Um, okay, I've got a D&D game in five minutes. Let me go. <laughs> <laughs> well, that answers that question. Bye, everybody. We're going to go. Um, uh, We will be back next week uh, on Twitch at 7 p.m. Eastern time, 4 p.m. the other time, Pacific time, uh, or 9 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard time, uh, if you happen to be in our part of the world. Uh, Everybody else figure it out. Uh, But the podcast will go up. Later in the week, every Wednesday, I believe, Eastern time, the podcast is up, so we will be back next week with another episode of the Eldritch Lawcast. Hit us with your emails if you have any questions about one d d podcast at ghostfiregaming.com. And otherwise, just kind of, you know, spread the word, let everybody know, uh, let the, the Lawcast roll a natural 20 this week and get inspiration because you'll tell people about it. Anyway, goodbye. Have a good week. <laughs>